Good morning, church family. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip, sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well knew these passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on that pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. The poem Ozymandias was written in response to the discovery of a large statue piece of the head of Ramses II, Pharaoh of Egypt. This is one of my favorite poems because it juxtaposes the power, the authority of this great king and his inevitable fall and the way that his legacy has been erased by history and by the passage of time, by the sand and the earth itself. No matter how great a person might think themselves or what they may accomplish, eventually they will be reduced to nothing. All human legacies fade over time even one so great and powerful as Ozymandias. The ancient pharaohs were thought to call themselves godlike, and yet they were powerless to sustain their own life. They all died. They were powerless to sustain the mighty empire of Egypt, and they were powerless to sustain their own statue from falling apart. Last month, we started our study of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, as you may remember, was a prophet to Judah who saw the wickedness of the Jews and was warned of God's coming punishment for their sin and breaking their covenant relationship with God. The Chaldean Empire is coming to invade. This is the message. Chapter 1 served as an announcement of this coming judgment. Now next month we'll look at chapter 3 and see the magnificence of God and the, the prayer and praise of Habakkuk and, and God's call to endure but this week, we're going to consider chapter 2, where we see how God separates the righteous from the unrighteous and will bring destruction against those that sin against him. Follow along as I read Habakkuk 2, the first five verses, so verses 1 through 5. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects, all his, and collects as his own all people. The thesis this morning is that the righteous shall live by faith, but the wicked shall be doomed to destruction. We'll look first at verse 1, the need for faith. Then at verses 2 through 5, God's people demonstrate faith through their patience. And then we're going to consider the second half of this chapter, verses 6 through 20, where we'll see that the wicked bring doom upon themselves. 
So look with me now first at verse 1, the need for faith. In this first verse, we see that Habakkuk doesn't understand, but he wants to understand. See, God has given him a very difficult oracle back in chapter 1 in response to his complaint. He was left with some very difficult questions. So Habakkuk has gone to the watchtower to sit, to wait, to reflect. He's, he's gone away from the busy parts of the city. He's now he's, he's up in this tower waiting on thinking about what he heard in chapter 1. You see, the short version of chapter 1 is that God is going to punish all the remaining Jews for their sins and their idolatry by raising up the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans. And God made it clear that he was going to use a sinful nation to accomplish his goal of punishing the sins of his people. And Habakkuk was taken aback by this. Now, objectively, it's easy to see why this message he was given was quite a blow to him. But I want to summarize chapter 1 for you again, summarize this hard lesson, and take a second and imagine what this must have sounded like to Habakkuk. What was it like to land on his ears? I want you to take a moment and put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. Now, today God speaks to us through his word, through the Bible. Praise God. But in this time period, he spoke through the prophets. And he spoke with the same authority and certainty as if it had always already happened that we see in the Bible. So God spoke with authority to the prophets. So imagine that you're in a time and a place where God speaks to prophets. And God, see, you see the evil in the world around you. And you ask God, God, what are you going to do about the sinful world we live in? Maybe you can think about our own nation and all the crazy, horrible things happening that happen in it sometimes. All the news stories and say, God, what are you going to do about all the evil in our own nation? And God speaks in this oracle then, speaks to Habakkuk and says, I am raising up a foreign power who will soon destroy your nation. Imagine if you knew that by the end of this very year, America would be destroyed. That a foreign power would sweep through our nation. That people in every city would be, would be killed, would be starved, would be enslaved. Think about how that would land on you. To know that what is normal now will be erased by the end of the year. That everything you know would be gone. The people in your life would be taken away. This is what has been landed on Habakkuk. And that the, the, the nation that God is going to use to punish our nation is an even more wicked nation. And so Habakkuk begins to wrestle with this. And he, he, he begins to ask God. He, he recognizes that, yes, generations of sin deserve the punishment. We deserve the, the destruction that's coming upon us. But Habakkuk wants to know more, just as we would want to know more. God, if you're going to destroy our nation, what comes next? What's going to happen next, God? And so this is why he's in the watchtower. He knows his whole country is soon to be destroyed, that everybody he encounters on a daily basis is going to be swept apart. Everything that's normal is about to be gone, and he wants to know why. So he's gone to the watchtower for one of two reasons. Either God is going to continue to tell him the next part of the story. He's going to answer this question that he, he left, the cliffhanger of chapter 1. God is going to explain what's going to happen next, or... From the watchtower, he'll be one of the very first people to see the Babylonians coming through the trees, coming through the hills to destroy Jerusalem. And so his going to the watchtower is him acknowledging that what God has said is true. Judgment is coming on, his, on Judah, on Israel, on, the, on the, the people, the Jews. 
His people will be destroyed, and it's going to come. And so he's in the watchtower where he will see them coming. But he's also there to pray and to ask God, God, will you answer my request? And, and here we see our very first application. When our faith in God grows weak, we must go to God. Over and over through the Bible, we see God's people bringing their complaints, their supplications, their questions to God. But there's an important balance, though, and I want to address this. You see, we're never called to put God to the test. Luke 4.12 makes this clear. Jesus says, you shall not put God to the test. But we are encouraged to ask questions in good faith. So what does this mean practically? How do we maintain this balance? Think about it like this. We are never called to try out God or try out Christianity the same way we would you know, try out a new deodorant or new shampoo. You know, I'm going to give Christianity a try for a month, see if it works, see if I like it, see if it's a good fit, and, you know, if it doesn't work, I'll try something else next month. That, that is offensive to God. That, that flippant, casual approach to God is offensive to Him. So we are not called to do that. We are not called to propose tests to God. God, if you are real, then you'll do X, Y, and Z. God, if, if you're real, then give me $100. You know, these kind of flippant tests of God. God has proven himself in the scriptures. He's proven himself by sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to die for us on the cross. He's proven himself by bringing Jesus back from the dead. God has been proven. He doesn't need to be proved. He doesn't need our arbitrary tests. There's nothing clever that we can come up with to test God. He's been proven in history and in scripture. So this is not how we are to approach God. But how we are to approach God when we struggle in our faith is, is the same way as Habakkuk, is the same way as the father in Mark 9, 23 through 24. I believe, help my unbelief. Habakkuk takes up the similar cry. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, O Lord, you are my rock, have established them for reproof. He calls God his rock, his refuge, his sanctuary. He says, God, I'm trusting in you. I'm resting in you, but I don't understand. Can you... Can you Help me to understand. Help me to see. It's a God-honoring prayer because he's, he's acknowledging God knows, but I don't. And I want to know, so I'm going to God for answers. And so he's praying to God in an honoring way, as opposed to a God, how dare you send the, the, the Chaldeans? This is not what I think a God should do. That's a, a very dishonoring prayer. That is a prayer that, that would delay him not trusting in God. And yet he's praying to God, recognizing God is who he says he is, but he's confused. His faith is weak. He wants to know more. He wants his faith, his belief to be strong in God. Now, thankfully, God takes pity on Habakkuk's vigil, and he does bring an answer. Look with me now at verses 2 through 5 as we see the first half of God's answer. So verses 2 through 5, God's people demonstrate faith by patience. In verses 2 and 3, God says, make the statement plain. He says, plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Put it in big print so that if you're running by, you can read it easily. You know, blow this up to a billboard. Make this big, make this obvious, make this so that nobody can miss it. So he wants there to be a message that is clear. Now, this is going to be contrasted to what we're going to see in verse 6. In verse 6, God is going to give an obscured message. But this message must be clear. So there's a contrast here. So what is the message that must be clear? Verse 4. Behold, 
His soul is puffed up, speaking of the wicked. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The plain truth is that the wicked are puffed up, but the righteous shall live by their faith. God wants Habakkuk to see the contrast between these two ways to live, those who are wicked and those who are living in faith. And the important thing is that there's only these two categories. Either you're living in wickedness or you're living in faith. So God makes it clear that there are only two ways to live. You are either puffed up, prideful, or you're living in faith. So pride or faith, these are the only two options, the only two ways to live. So let's take a moment and define what these are. So what is pride? Ultimately, a wicked person sees themselves as God. They very likely will not say that. You know, if you ask somebody, oh, do you think you're God? They'll probably not say yes. They'll say, well, and they'll, they'll give you platitudes. They'll give you excuses. They'll make up a story for you. But at the end of the day, all wickedness, all unbelief is, is desiring to be God. Think about it. All sinners want to be in control. They want to make the rules. You want to control your life. I want to define my life. The wicked person says, I want to say what's good, what's bad, what I deserve what the definition of love is, what the definition of God is. I want to be in control. I want God to report to me, meaning I want to be God. This manifests itself in the assumptions or presuppositions of every part of our culture, from the music to the TV shows. Everything our sinful culture creates has this underlying principle of we just want to be God. Our own sin nature pushes us in that direction. So then what does it mean to live by faith? Well, living by faith fundamentally means we're trusting in God as the final authority. That God is who he says he is. That the world he created works the way he says he created it to work. And so when we're under God, when we're living in faith, we're acknowledging, we're, we're recognizing that God is the one who decides and de defines our lives. That God is the one that gets to define good and evil. God is the one that gets to make the rules. God is the one who establishes the blessings and the punishments. God is the one who decides how life will work, what our life will mean, not ourselves. And so faith is trusting God to be good when he says he's good. Trusting God to provide our salvation in Jesus. That when Jesus says it's finished, that it's finished. This is what faith is. It is taking, it is putting to death the desire to be God and trusting in God. So this is what God has called us to do, to trust himself. And we see that the immediate application of this is patience. Look again at verse 3. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God ties patience to faith. Now, why does he do this? Well, God is gently reminding Habakkuk to wait on his timing. This means two things. We're... Habakkuk is to wait on the Lord for answers, which he's been doing. He's been waiting in the watchtower. But also, he's to wait on the punishment to end. So there's going to be a time of severe trials that will come upon the people of Judah. They are going to be punished as the Chaldeans invade their, invade their nation. And so Habakkuk will wait now as he's waited for answers, but he's also called to wait for the trial to end. And why is this? Because patience produces faith. As we're patient, our heart is forced to realize that we are not God. And so our patience grows our faith. I hope you can see how these two are related. 
As we are patient, as we're waiting for God, it forces us to realize that God is in charge and we are not. And so our faith in God as we meditate grows on God. And these two things feed each other. So because of this, patience is a blessing, not a punishment. If you find yourself here waiting today, if you're waiting for the job, the spouse, the promotion, an end to a painful situation, for something that is healing to finally be healed, I want to encourage you this morning that God is with you in your waiting just as he was with Habakkuk. Don't waste the long hours and days of waiting that God has put before you, but redeem them by spending time with God and letting your faith grow in him. But don't miss verse 5. Verse 5 is unexpected. So we have, the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor. It's kind of a, kind of a left turn there. Not kind of the verse we would expect to be next, right? Where is God going with this? Why are we going from faith to wine? It's kind of a strange turn, isn't it? So, so let's think about it for a minute. So what is, what is God trying to teach us here? Wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Well, let's think about what alcohol really is, what, it, what wine really is. It's not just, you know, a beverage that can be abused or, uh, you know, a chemical. But what God is pointing at here is how alcohol is so easily used by what we call a, a coping mechanism as the opposite of faithful patience. So think about it like this. The righteous person, when called to wait, when called to, to endure the chastisement of, of their sin, is called to rest and trust in God, to grow their faith, to heal, to, to be sanctified. But the wicked, when confronted with their sin, when confronted with waiting, Instead of turning to God, we'll often turn to alcohol, to turn to drink. Alcohol is great for helping you sleep at night, but it's terrible for, for helping you to grow, to heal, to rest in God. And so it kills faith. To, to engage in a means of, of alcohol, in this case, of saying, I'm just going to drink until my problems are over. It's the opposite of what we're called to. So instead of a patience that builds our faith, it's a, an endless coping, an endless waiting that destroys and degrades our faith. But let's apply this in a more broad scope. I suspect there might be a few people here who struggle with alcohol or more likely have friends or family who struggle with it. But that's by far the only, not the only way to numb yourself after a hard day. More than likely, each and every one of us has things that we like to do at the end of the day after a hard week. We all have ways of relaxing, right? So I want to be careful here. See, God does not condemn rest and recreation. In fact, he encourages it. God calls us to rest, to enjoy the world around us. He calls us to engage with the creative minds he's given us. And he created us with them. So resting is good. Enjoying a good meal and even having a drink is not inherently sinful. But where our coping mechanism describes us, as verse 5 describes where our coping mechanisms, whether it's drink or something else, where it begins to dictate our schedule, our finances, our relationships, we can be sure that what was once a good thing has begun to eat away our affections for God and our faith in his good providence and timing. So if the things that you're using to, at the end of the day to help you get to sleep are causing you to drift further from God, are, are controlling your life, your finances, your friendships, what you do with your time, and are pulling you away from God. What, what was once maybe a good thing has now become a bad thing. And this is, this is what he's warning us about. 
So I would, I would to challenge you this morning to apply both verse 4's call to patience and faith, but also verse 5's call for sober patience. We're called to be sober in our patience. So being patient doesn't mean that we watch endless TV episodes, endless YouTube videos, one more game, one more song, one more hobby project, one more date night to feel a little less lonely. It's not, okay, God, you've called me to wait, so I'm just going to fill my schedule up until this is over. No, we're called to draw near to God, to rest in the joy of the world he's created and the time period he's put us in. Or are, we, are guilty pleasures and addictions the very thing that's keeping us from healing and growing in our faith? And with the example of alcohol, do you, do you drink your paycheck away and then need the alcohol to cope with the fact that you can't afford the things you need? And this is, this is why alcohol is such a good representation. Because oftentimes the things that we think are helping us are the very things that are hurting us. I encourage you to pray about this. Pray about these things. Examine your life. Maybe cut out different indulgences, different enjoyments from your life for a week. See if you can live without things. Look again at verse 5 and see how serious this is to God. Wine is personified as a man that has enslaved not just entire nations, but all nations. Nations that are numb and entertaining themselves to hell. America is certainly no exception, and we're on that list of nations as well. What benefit will the drunkenness be on the day of judgment? What will it matter that you watched every episode, that you scored the high score, that you caught the big game, that you worked nights and weekends and got the, the best sales goal in your entire company? What will that matter on the day of judgment? For do not wait faithfully for the Lord. Friends, I don't know what it is in your life that you trust in, but God does, and he says here and now, it is never enough. Like death, he is never enough. So be content. Rest in what God has given you. Turn your heart to him on your hard days. This is the clear message that God gives us in the first half of this chapter. And now let's look at the second half of this chapter. In these final verses, verses 6 through 20, we see God propose a series of riddles. Now, riddles are not, again, not what we expect to find in the Bible. There's not a lot of riddles in the Bible. So God provides five riddles against the Chaldeans. And this is a little bit unexpected. God proposes these riddles to show us, finally, that the wicked will bring doom upon themselves. Now, let's ask the question, why is God using riddles against the wicked? Why is the first half of the passage supposed to be clear, and the second half of the passage is in riddle form? Well, the first reason that God uses riddles is because riddles force the reader to slow down and think carefully and introspective about the subject. God doesn't want us just to blast past the second half of this chapter. I can't wait for chapter 3. Chapter 3 is magnificent. But God doesn't want us to skip the second half of chapter 2 because it's uncomfortable. He wants us to slow down and stop and think and, and meditate on these riddles. Riddles have a way of sticking in your brain and slowing you down and helping you to see things that you didn't see before. I think the second re reason for the riddles is we see the word scoffing in verse 6. These riddles are for scoffing. This is to say he's mocking the wicked. God is literally taunting, challenging the Chaldeans, all wicked people groups who follow them to break his riddles. God is giving the challenge to all evil through all centuries. Prove God wrong. Can you do it? <laughs> Needless to say, this challenge 
has never been completed in history. No wicked nation, no wicked company, no wicked culture has ever broken these five riddles. These five riddles have been true of every ancient people, modern people, and everybody in between. Every company, every organization, every false religion, if it is based in wickedness, these five riddles will be true somewhere. And so God is proven right. Third, these wicked riddles are used to condemn the wicked while providing warning and wisdom to the righteous. We heard this message echoed in Proverbs 1, 20 through 29 just a minute ago. Did you catch that? Wisdom is calling in the streets and the righteous hear wisdom, but the wicked reject wisdom. They want their own wisdom. They want to be God. And so the wicked reject the call to repentance and faith. And what was their result? Just as this passage will tell us, it is condemnation. This is also the reason why Jesus taught in parables. Consider for a moment the words of Matthew 13, 10 through 13. Then the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The reason for riddles is the same reason Jesus uses parables in the New Testament when he spoke to the wicked. Parables and riddles ultimately bring condemnation. There's a recognition that evil will never turn and listen by itself. And so Jesus judges through parables, but he speaks plainly to his own children when he, who are redeemed. Habakkuk, unknowingly probably, is foreshadowing. He's paralleling the way that Jesus is going to speak in the New Testament. I think the final and fourth reason that God uses riddles is because he wants us to see that God is always right, that his word is always true, and that the world's way is always wrong. God wants us to recognize the folly of evil, to see the absurdity of what the wicked set out to do. God wants to see the opposite of faith. We've been told of faith, and we're going to hear more of faith in chapter 3, but he wants us to, to stop for these 14 verses and see the opposite of faith. What are the wicked really like? What are they going to be like in every generation? Habakkuk is living proof that God is who he says he is. These riddles are all timeless in their metaphor. The applications we made again and again, every generation can apply these in new and different ways. God's wisdom is proven right in every generation. So while the plans of the wicked will always come to failure, there's going to be a lot of applications as we go through these. And I'm sure if you were to sit down, you'd be able to come up with even more. Spend time meditating on these woes this week if you have time. They're, they've been so much fun to, to pick through and think through and apply to different situations. So we'll, we'll take some time now and go through each of the five riddles. Now, each of the riddles, riddles is easy to spot because they always feature the word woe. There's a woe phrase in every single riddle, and your Bible probably breaks out the five paragraphs, so it's easy to spot them as well. Each one of these will say something about a wicked society, so we're going to look at it. I'll describe to you what this is talking about in a historical context, and then we'll look at a, a general application on a wicked society like our own, and then I want to give some pointed application as well and not just you know, look at this and say, oh, our, our country is bad. But how, how do we look at these and see the sin that may be in our own lives as well, too? So, verse 6 through 8, the first woe. 
Shall not all those take up a taunt against him with scoffing of riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And will those who awake who will not make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The context of this woe is it points to two of the major follies of military combat, something that the Babylonians, of course, were very well known for. The first is that uninhabited land is worthless, so the Chaldeans, as they're conquering people, have to establish farmers and traders, people to work the land, people that they can generate taxes from. And as they're conquering nations and expanding out, they're, they're building up cities and cities full of people who resent them. The bigger their kingdom goes, the more people who hate them who are resentful of being conquered, have filled up the land. The second folly of combat is that the soldiers themselves, they're there because they're being paid to be there. And so as they, they're plundering, so the, the soldiers, as soon as the paychecks run out, history has proven that when you stop paying your soldiers, they tend to turn and attack you instead. And so the, the strength that we heard about in chapter 1 of the Chaldeans and their giant great armies is fragile because they're filling their, their land with conquered peoples. Their soldiers are only there because they're paid to be there. The, the, one of the reasons the, the, the uh, Roman Empire was as good as it was is because they finally figured out that you need to have roads right behind the soldiers to get the paychecks there on time, to make sure that the food stays there, the supply stays there. But an army is only as strong as the gold until it runs out. So a general application of this woe for our culture would be to learn to recognize purchase loyalty against true loyalty. Someone who is coerced to do something or paid to be there is not truly genuine. The people who are in the, the kingdom of Babylon, they're not Babylonians. They're conquered peoples. They're waiting for an opportunity to, to show their true colors. So we could apply this by thinking about someone who's co coerced to do something. So if somebody is coerced to be a Christian, for example, their friends are all Christians, so why don't they just be a Christian too? And, you know, their, their mom and dad really want you to be a Christian, so you're just going to be a Christian too. That's not true Christianity. That will come back eventually, and, and the true colors, as this passage kind of describes, will come out. And so as we're evangelizing, especially for the parents, as we're speaking to our children, we're not called to, to coerce our children, to bribe our children into the faith. We're called to share our faith in a genuine matter, to seek genuine repentance, not coercion. Another application from this passage, we could apply this first woe to our own lives, is by learning to recognize the danger of those motivated by wealth and power. In John 10, Jesus contrasts his ministry as the good shepherd against false religious leaders. He calls them hired hands, these helpers, those who are only there for a paycheck. And as Christians, we must always be on guard against those who pose as Christians in any position of teaching, authority, or influence to make themselves rich or famous. There will always be wolves in every generation that masquerade themselves as teachers and influencers to try to, to benefit from Christian culture, to, to make some money off of Christians. And Jesus says that these people will flee when it gets difficult. Just as when the armies stop looking, the, the people will revolt and overthrow the Babylonians. So when things get difficult... Those who are only there for the money will flee the church. The second woe now, verse 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to, see, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. 
You have devised shame from your, for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. You could sum this, sum up, summarize this woe by saying it is against putting safety before other people's lives. A wicked culture will prioritize its safety over the lives of its people. This picture of this woe is the image of a person who takes advantage of others by building themselves a fortress of their own making. This wicked person has put their safety ahead of others, and they've, they've isolated themselves. They said, my, the best way for me to be safe is to be up at a fortress by myself with nobody who can touch me. I'm going to be in the strong fortress, and, and I'm going to build it with, no, with spare no expense, and everybody else is just staying away from me. And in cutting themselves off, instead of feeling safe, they've become ashamed. They've become derided in the culture. They are now alone. Safety by isolation doesn't bring safety, it brings death. We see this play out, this, this mentality play out in our own culture all the time. Our culture has 100,000 products to sell you, to keep you safe. You can buy cameras, security systems, self-defense weapons, seat belts, vitamins, workout routines that claim to uh, extend your life. Friends, neither you nor the people who write that ad copy can guarantee your next hour of life. This woe points us right back to chapter 1, verse 12. Again, our rock and our refuge, our fortress must be God. The wicked find their fortress in whatever safety that they can devise, but the righteous find faith in God as their safety. Our safety must be found, first and foremost, in our faith. And only in faith will you ever be able to say, my safety is enough. My God is in heaven. Jesus is on the throne. I am safe to sleep tonight. Another way we can apply this text is to remember the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 12, 32-34 says this, Fear not, little flock, for your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'd encourage you today, guard your heart against loving the world so much that your joy is stolen by your fear of keeping what you have safe. Now this doesn't mean we leave our doors unlocked at night. But what it does mean is that as we make wise decisions, we live trusting that God will make it enough, that our safety is found in Him. Our treasures are in heaven, our investments in heaven, not in this world. And so we can find rest while the wicked, the walls cry out, are you sure you made the walls thick enough? Are you sure the fortress is strong enough? Are you sure you have enough bullets and guns and cameras and, and alarms? What if, what if you forgot something? So why the wicked is perpetually paranoid of their safety, the righteous can sleep at night knowing that God will keep them safe. That no matter what happens, it is in God's hands. Look now, the third woe, verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a warning against cruelty. This is the woe against how every wicked nation is built on cruelty. It's built on taking human life, causing suffering, and it, because of that, is doomed to fail. The story presents 
a great parallel between all of the empires of the earth. Every country on this earth has been founded on suffering, on war, on death that is, that is underlied all, all of these different cultures. And every single one of them that rises eventually falls. You know, every, every great nation is eventually, you know, it, maybe it lasts 100 years, maybe it lasts 1,000 years, but it will eventually fail. And in contrast, the knowledge of the Lord, the kingdom of God, grows generation after generation. God's people are still here, and our kingdom only grows. God's kingdom is eternal. It is everlasting. It does not fail in any generation. And so God is growing his kingdom as the kingdoms of the earth rise and fall. Now this passage should change our mindset in regards to how the world functions. A town built with blood. Human life and human dignity is more valuable than earthly wealth. And I think there's an application for us in our culture. You see, as Christians, we have an obligation to speak for the dignity of life. And this doesn't just mean that we speak out against abortion or against war. That's a good thing to do. But we should also speak in favor of fair wage. Verse 13 speaks of people who labor all day long just to have a fire to sleep next to at night. They don't have any food. They barely have a roof or clothes. They're, they're working their whole day as slaves, barely able to just keep themselves warm. And this is what something God calls wrong. God says it's wrong for an employer to demand a full day's work, but refuse to pay enough money to even feed yourself or have a roof over your head. It's morally wrong for companies to abuse their employees' hard work. So while American capitalism might cheer when companies lay off thousands of employees just so that the, uh, the amount of profit in the year could go up a little bit, this kind of behavior, the Bible condemns and says, no, human life is more valuable than getting a 10% profit share instead of an 8% profit share. I've been in the workforce for over a decade now, and I've seen thousands of people unjustly laid off. There's a time and a place for layoffs. It happens and it's, it's, a, it's a, a reality. But the thousands of people laid off every day just because the numbers on the balance sheet are not good enough for the stockholders is immoral. And it's pervasive in our work culture. And as Christians, we can cry out and say, no, this is unjust. This is not right. This is not good. Money is not the ultimate good. Human life, human dignity is. And so we have an obligation to speak up where we have opportunity. But... I say this application is not just for business owners. If you don't own a business, you're not off the hook. You don't get to take this woe off. We're not just called to be, to be wise in the way that we conduct our own nations and our own kingdom building. Instead, look at the way we manage what God has given us. Are we seeking to build wealth or seeking to bless those around us? Remember the underlying theme. It ultimately takes faith in God to treat other people well. If you don't have faith, then taking advantage of others, ripping people off, makes perfect sense. Of course I'm going to hurt other people to make myself wealthy because I think I am as God. But if you have faith in God, if you see other people as the image bearer of God, then you won't be motivated by, by your bottom line, by profit. You'll be motivated to love and care for others. So the way we treat other people proves or disproves our faith. We saw this a few weeks ago in our study of 1 John, and we see it again right here. The way we treat people shows whether or not we really believe in God. Look now at the fourth woe, verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. 
in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is the Lord's right hand will come up to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. This is a picture, and it is a horrifyingly vivid one. We see in this woe, a man invites his neighbor over and says, hey, let's have a drink together. He gets his neighbor drunk and then takes advantage of them. He exposes their nakedness. And God sees this cruelty and absolutely condemns it. He promises them that their shame will soon come. The violence done to Lebanon, referring to a country that had been thoroughly wiped out, the destruction of the beasts. He says, you will be destroyed just as you have taken advantage of your neighbor. This is a, a horrifying picture. And, and we've seen this play out literally in our culture. We've seen the likes of, of Epstein, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and these other figures in our pop culture, in our society who have been exposed as physically taking advantage of others. And the Bible condemns abuse. It condemns abusers. And it calls for them to have their wealth and their legacy stripped from them. But the obvious application of this text is that we are called to not take advantage of others. Whether this is literal through drugs or drunkenness or someone who is, we find who is incapacitated, or maybe less obvious is somebody who is under our authority, somebody who is in need of our help and now we have an, an authority over them or an advantage over them. God calls us to not ever take advantage of people, to see people as created in God's image, and that we are not called to use any circumstance to take advantage of those who are in our power. I want to give a more pointed application to this one, though. I want to take for a moment and, what this say, and talk about what this verse implies on the subject of pornography. What all pornography really is, is image bearers of God who have been emotionally and financially manipulated into selling their nakedness. No healthy person who values their human dignity willingly humiliates themselves. Only those who have been abused or mentally manipulated. Verse 15 makes it clear that engaging with porn is not a victimless crime. The person who's being objectified for personal pleasure is an image bearer of God that has been abused. And if you partake in this sin, you are willingly partaking in their abuse. You are seeing another person made in God's image being abused and you're saying, yes, I want to join in that abuse. I want to join in making them suffer. I want to see them exposed, as God says, and God condemns this behavior. I want you to see pornography as human abuse, as abhorrent, as vile, as God sees it. If you're struggling with the temptation, as so many are, I'd encourage you, meditate on the vileness of the industry and the circumstances that create it. I pray that you'll find your appetite taken away for perversion, that it would leave you as you see how filthy and vile it is in God's eyes for people to be exposed, and to be people to be humiliated. Look with me now at the final woe, verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The image of the idol maker is mocked throughout the Bible. This passage is paralleled in Isaiah 44 and Psalm 115 that was read at the beginning of the service as well as other passages. A man creates an idol from things created by God. He takes God's creation and he fashions an idol and he begins to worship it. And he worships something that he himself has made. Wood, stone, precious metals are formed and created and worshipped. The blessing that God gives us in his creation is turned against worshiping God, the gift giver, to worshiping the gift. This is insanity. This is ridiculous to worship a gift instead of the gift giver. Now, modern America doesn't want to emphasize bowing down to literal wooden statues or metal images and worshiping them outright. And yet, I'd argue that America is just as obsessed with idolatry as the Babylonians. Ultimately, worship is giving your time, affections, and your life's priority to something or someone. Worship isn't just something you call a worship service. It's not just what we're doing here. It's, it's how you live your life. It's what your life is pointed towards. It's the thing in your life that has the greatest priority on your time, your finances, your being, your mind. That is what you're worshiping. And so, idol worship involves seeking higher knowledge, seeking something that is outside of yourself. Seeking power, safety, or the ability to take advantage over others. All the things from the previous four woes. All four of them come back to idol worship. This one, in a sense, summarizes all of the other four woes. All of what wickedness is, is idol worship. Worshiping something instead of God. Now, all these things are seen in our culture. We could, we could look at all the things in our culture that demand your time and affections, your attention, your priority. Things like sports, politics, music, music movies, the list goes on and on and on. I'm sure you could sit here and, and make list after list after list of all the things that demand to be priority number one in your life. On every street corner in America, there's another God to be worshipped, another idol ready to, to have all your time and all your money and all your energy. The American pantheon is one of the largest and most inclusive religions this world has ever seen. I want to give one personal example from my own life that I've seen recently of this, of this wicked obsession. And it's in the business world in regards to artificial intelligence. You see, AI, artificial intelligence, this, this new technology that's hardly even been finished inventing yet, has dominated the conversation in the tech space. The question that's really being asked, though, is what if we could make a metal object fashioned in our own hand to do our own work for us? What if it could teach? You know, as, as this passage says, can it teach? And we, we want an AI. We want to fashion a metal object to teach. We're a lot fancier and more technologically advanced than the Babylonians. We're exactly just as sinful as them as a society. We want to be taught by our metal images, just as the Babylonians did. It's just we put a computer inside of our metal images. And so, so the, the, the tech industry, the AI industry, is obsessed with the very same sin as the Babylonians thousands of years ago. The creation, though, will never surpass the creator. We are made in God's image, and machines are made in our own. They are, they are our creation, period. Machines will never become smarter than us. 
and they will certainly never become smarter than God because intelligence is a gift from God. God has given us an intelligence. He's given us a mind. We're never going to be able to artificially create that. Yes, we can create a machine that can do math really fast or generate a, a song or a poem, but real intelligence comes from the Lord. And so when we see the tech industry obsessing over the ability to maybe create something greater than ourselves, what really is being underlined, uh, underlying there is the sin of wanting to make God in our own image. It's the same as the idol makers for the Babylonians thousands of years ago. And so Habakkuk is writing all the way back in the Old Testament and warning us it's never going to work. It's never going to work. We're never going to create intelligence that God has given us in something else. It's nothing but fancy algorithms. The more general application, though, of this should be, more, should be obvious, though. Guard your heart. God will not share affections. Consider the second commandment in Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So my question this morning is this, where is your love and affections? Do they rest on Christ alone? Is, is your love and affections on the cross, on Jesus who died for your sin? Or do the many gods and idols of this world tantalize you? Do you enjoy God's creation, enjoy the world he's put you in, or do you worship it? Consider verse 20, this final verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before them. So ask yourself, do you cry out endlessly to your idols, to your phone, your computer, your work, your culture, to keep you entertained, to keep you happy, to give you all the answers? Or are you silent and waiting in the Lord's holy temple? Do you come before God in rest? Do you find peace and joy resting in the Lord? Does your faith grow in your patience? Or is silence impossible? Is it terrifying to you? Can you rest and be silent before the Lord? To conclude this morning, I want, to, I want you to consider where your faith is. What is it that you're worshiping? You have faith in something. If it's not in God, if it's, it's probably in yourself or in something else, or maybe you have a pessimistic outcome. You say, nothing matters. I don't have faith in anything. Well, nothing matters is a statement of faith that you're having faith that nothing matters. That takes a lot of faith. You have faith in something. You're worshiping something with your life. And you need to know today what that something is. And so I'd encourage you, be honest with yourself. Reflect Look in the Bible as a mirror and see what does your heart look like. Are you trusting the God of the Bible? Or are you trusting in the follies of the world? Do you have a collection of idols curated by the world to help you feel like you're always at peace and yet you're always anxious? If you're not trusting in the God of the Bible, I want to call you to see this folly. See that everything the world offers you will fail and fade just as the ancient Empires of the Chaldeans failed and faded. Only by trusting in God, the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, to save you from your sins, can you be found in the path of righteousness. Only then will you have real, substantial, life-giving faith. 
And for those of you who are trusting in the Lord, I want you to be encouraged with this. Do not let the noise of the world distract and discourage your faith. Be patient on how God is working in your life. The Babylonians were powerful. They were unavoidable in their day. And now they're nothing but memories. They're nothing but a handful of ruins in the Middle East. God's people still stand strong generation after generation. Enjoy God's world. Enjoy the creation He's put us in. But don't give your heart to it. Don't worship it. Don't, don't let it dictate what you do when you get home after the service today. Don't let the world make your decisions for you. Feed your faith on the Bible. Find joy and patience. And you will find a real peace that in times of trials will never end and never fail you. Let's pray, and then we'll take a moment of silence to reflect on God's Word. Father, help us to have faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would drive the wickedness and sin out of our hearts. God, I know my heart is sinful. I see the allure of the world. I know all the temptations that the world places before me that my flesh so desires. God, help me to abhor what you have called evil. Help me to hate what you have called sin. Help me to love what you have called good. Help all of us, Lord, to see and hate sin and to love what you have called us to love. Help us to find joy in Jesus and our Lord. Help us, Lord, to find joy in patience. It's hard to be patient, Lord. Help us to be patient when you call us to be patient. Help us to wait in joy. Help us, Lord, to bring our questions to you. Help us, Lord, to find our answers in you, not in ourselves. Help us, Lord, to love you and you alone in this world. Bless the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.